What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Tim Levinson, who's in New York right now, but he's from Australia. I used to know Tim as Earth Boy. He's a musician. He's a rapper. He's an artist. He's a label manager, and he's an artist manager. We've known each other for over 20 years, I think. And what we're going to try to do is try to capture some of what Tim's learned about life and art and business and try to work out how to translate that into the careers that people who are listening have. What's up, Tim? Welcome. Hey, thanks very much. It's really good to talk to you. I'm going to enjoy all of this. And I know this could well be one of those six-hour conversations, but uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll do a, do a few. I want my reputation precedes me. <laughs> no, that's probably mine as well. I can do six-hour conversations in silence. I don't have much of an in-between. Yeah, perfect. Um, so I, I want to go back. I want to talk to you as an artist and I want to talk to you about art. And the way that I first came across you was interesting. And I, I think about you and, and your crew quite often as I've tried to understand myself more as an artist and not someone who is making a hip hop magazine and kind of being very arm's length from their own personal self-expression and artistry. And the way that we originally met is that you came from, I hope I get this correct, but you grew up in around or spent a bit of time in the Blue Mountains, got into rap, and then would come to the city to try to kind of establish yourself in, in that, in that hip hop scene there. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yep. In the mountains, it was we were, it was a school context, so there wasn't really a, any kind of hip-hop community up there, and Sydney was the closest place that I could really kind of connect. Um, so, you know, that was a two-hour trip, and there'd be record stores and, and different people who were really passionate that, that kind of opened the door a little wider for me. And did you find that it was easy to access that Sydney hip-hop and, and music scene initially when you, when you first came down from the mountains? <laughs> Not at all. Um, you know, the context is that we were really wide-eyed kids and we're used to the mystery of hip-hop culture because this was something that wasn't readily available through any of the channels that you'd experience art from, whether that be TV or radio. And online wasn't an option back then, so you'd order hip-hop records from the local record store and that would take, you know, they, they would come in on import and that would take two to three months to arrive. So, you know, there was this huge anticipation between, you know, the thought of something and actually engaging with it. And the only other, you know, medium that we had was this really weird come to think about it TV show that was on this um, channel called SBS, which was the multicultural broadcaster in Australia. And it was called MCTV. And out of nowhere, I don't think it, must have rated very high, but they used to play hip hop clips, not, you know, young MC and um, run DMC and um, tone Loke and NWA and public enemy acts that actually crossed over in Australia. It was like a tribe called quest and De La soul and jungle brothers. And, you know, I think there were even, you know, pockets of types of artists like Paris and ghetto boys that really, Definitely opened my eyes to a, a much sort of wider scope of hip hop culture. And then when you went to Sydney, you met the other people who were really passionate about it and everyone was just trying to staunch each other. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have these little windows of access to the culture through um, what was available in the mountains. And then you go to Sydney thinking that everyone's kind of an expert and then they'd be staunching you out and you'd be kind of like wanting to impress them. And I, I remember always being nervous going into these hip hop specialty stores just. I guess kind of wanting to engage with these other people that I saw as the authorities and they were, you know, playing the role. They were like fronting and, and so, yeah, it was always a bit of a nerve wracking experience, but you know, I guess that was, everyone was just so completely obsessed with paying dues. So you'd go in there a few times and gradually, you know, one of the guys who was working there might crack a smile on and then you'd meet someone and, and, and just over time, developed a little bit of a connection and an understanding of who was doing what. So, yeah. Yeah. And we, we won't necessarily lose everyone in hip hop specificity, but we'll get into it a little bit. So there were stores like Next Level Records, Central Station Records. And if you're familiar with the New York hip hop scene, they were, well, Next Level especially was quite close to Fat Beats Records, which was a long stay. And I'm sure New York had probably tens, if not hundreds of other pretty well-known stores. And being in the middle of nowhere, as in Australia, we always tried to pay attention 
to what was happening around the world because we had to had to manufacture it. And then Tim, being from the Blue Mountains, which is two hours outside of Sydney, where Sydney is is or has been one of the or the largest city. I think Melbourne's close or taking over at some point. I've seen some weird graphs. Like that's a, that's a big effort to actually like come into something like that, that kind of culture. Like how did you get into it in the first place? I uh, really wish I could answer that with accuracy. I, I think it was just one of those, I felt some sort of compelling, you know, um, gravitational pull to. I don't exactly know why. I know that I was writing poetry and I was writing what was kind of like mutated versions of rap. And I can't even, you know, when I look back, connect the dots between what came first there, whether it was me just trying to write poetry and it just becoming this weird version of, of poetry slash, you know, hip hop rhythms and, or at least the rhyming schemes. And then the fascination with, with hip hop culture, whether that be, you know, the early days of graffiti or just sort of seeing this whole other world. And it really had this pretty profound effect on me because a lot of the hip hop that was coming out of that time was really Afrocentric and it was really political. And that was, you know, fascinating for me as I was still just trying to work out my own identity. And I guess it made me reflect closer on what some of those issues that these hip hop artists were talking about and how they applied in Australia. So it started making me think a little bit more about my own environment and the history Mm. of Australia. And, you know, to your audiences, some of them would be familiar with this in their own context, but, you know, our education, you know, the textbooks never really told us a, you know, an accurate depiction of history. It was always like a version of events that was told from a colonial perspective. So none of the issues that were being talked about in hip hop music seemed to cross over into what I had learned in school. So it was sort of like a, a secondary education for me, even though at the same time, you know, there's a whole bunch of that, the hip hop culture that people kind of stereotypes as just violence and, and um, sexist. And, and, and um, they looked at it through these narrow lens where I was, I was getting this really kind of um, widescreen experience that, that, that forced me to ask all these kinds of questions. Hmm. And then in some respects, as you started to formalize what you were doing into music that you would put into public, I think what I sort of have always enjoyed about you and the crew that you came up with is a little bit like a guy called Brain Text in the UK, like Buck 65 and 62 in Canada, like Anticon and a lot of the people who used to roll through Scribble Jam. You kind of had to create not just the music, but also an audience and sometimes venues that would host you and your audience in a way that had not been done before. Is that is that hyperbolic, what I just said? Did you feel that going through it? Not really. I mean, I definitely think as we started making music and trying to figure out ways to communicate that to people, whether that be burning CDs and self-distributing them, putting them on consignment in record stores and trying to tour, I think that everything was unknown and there was no pathway or precedent for artists before us that gave us a a bit of an indication of what to do and what not to do. So everything was just like, you know, learn as you go. Um, I I do remember feeling really excited. I went to Scribble Jam in 2001 and and I saw all these battle rappers and, um, you know, that real infection or like that enthusiasm for all of the different components of the culture. And, uh, yeah, I did really want to take a little bit of that energy home and, or at least kind of see in our local music community, a similar kind of energy. You know, I I guess in some ways we, we, we shared that in common with some of those artists and those communities, but um, um, we we were kind of rolling blind. Um, So yeah, in retrospect, maybe there is some similarities there. I wasn't picking up on that under time. Yeah. 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 Uh, do you identify as an artist? Do you even use words like art and artist or artistry to think through what you have built your entire life around? Yeah, definitely. I have a really broad definition of artist. I've grappled with it for a long time because when you're on, when you're traveling and you're asked to tell people what your profession is, quite often I put manager because I'm thinking as I get on a plane, like, 
you know, am I going to get pulled up by customs because I'm an artist and I'll be sus about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe we should pull this guy aside. So I think, oh, what's a real straight kind of job description so I don't ever, you know, run into any hassles after I've got enough of a 14-hour flight or whatnot. But actually when I think about my time as a musician, I think of myself as a songwriter rather than musician, rapper, anything like that. I've, I've kind of settled on this, this idea that I'm a songwriter, but... When you ask me the question about, do I think that I'm an artist? Yeah, definitely. Um, I definitely think that I'm an artist. And I think like an artist more than I think as a businessman. I think that a lot of people who are involved in the back end side of particularly the music industry, but more broadly, a whole lot of other industries, I think that people don't give themselves enough credit as far as their own artistry. Because I think artistry really kind of, it basically just opens a door on your creativity. And creativity is really just, artistry and artistry really is just being passionate about something and, and, and working out how to problem solve your way through the start to the end of it or you know maybe there's no end of it but you, you just it's just a series of problem solving mm-hmm. and I mean in, in a kind of drier context that's business and that's that's uh, you know perhaps more of a, a way of describing the industry's role in music but but I, I see them. I see so many of these things having a crossover. There's a there's a Venn diagram, and um, creativity and artistry is is definitely crossing over a lot of times. Mm. How did you arrive at that point of view on what an artist is? I think it's partly because I'm an artist that has had to learn the business as I've gone, and because we had no labels chasing us and. There was an, an industry that was ready to, you know, monetize us. We um, had to just do it ourselves. So I have reluctantly taken on the tag of of being a business person. And um, as time has gone on, I, you know, and uh, probably for quite some time, I had a little bit of an artist mentality where it's us against them. And so you think about yourselves as the as the, as the ones with integrity and perhaps the people around you, the, the, the business people who are trying to make money off it is perhaps like the ones who taint that purity of it. And that was maybe ironic because I was always involved in that business side of it. So I never really fully went into that, that puritanical kind of perspective as far as being an artist. But you know, when your peers move in a current, you kind of get swept along with it. Even if you're pushing against it, you, you're still a part of that general current. And I had to slowly come to terms with the fact that, you know, as much as it's easy to define the people who are perhaps not just full-time artists as as not having the same sort of integrity as you do, you spend some time on both sides and you realize that's not true. So over time... I came to realize that, you know, if you've got people involved in the communication of your music, you really want them to be able to access different parts of their own personalities to be able to help tell that story. And so that means that I started accepting a little bit more that, you know, the the art of our lives kind of manifesting whatever we're doing rather than it being like, okay, now I'm a business person. I'm going to put my business hat on and now I'm an artist. I'm going to put my artist hat on. I think these things sort of just filter into to everything that we're doing. Yeah. I look, I mean, when we came up, the dogma was the four elements and you had to do one of the four <laughs> elements or, or, and if you did all four of them, breakdancing, DJing, MCing, graffiti, if you did all four of them, well, you were the best. Yeah. <laughs> You're the wizard. <laughs> so we didn't even grow up with like a binary. We grew up with a quadrupolary. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm calling it. Did did you call yourself an, an MC or a rapper before you even thought of yourself as a songwriter? Yeah, for sure. For a long time, I thought of myself as a rapper, and yeah, music is. I think the easy thing that we tell ourselves is that music's a young person's um, activity, and I'm certainly in the in the broadest scheme of things, it kind of is. That's how the industry focuses itself, and 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 necessarily so because the only way that art is interesting in a in a kind of ongoing sense is if it continually rejuvenates and evolves and resets and moves into different directions and you need new ideas and you need people who haven't mastered their craft to be able to, you know, make those seemingly odd decisions that makes really interesting and innovative art. So, um, yeah, as, as I felt maybe a little bit less like rapper defined me, songwriter kind of took over and I realized that that's what I've been the whole time anyway. So 
six of one, half a dozen of the other. Well, maybe, maybe, but sometimes these words <laughs> which we hear for ages until we choose them and then start to see ourselves through them, they can actually be quite uh, life-changing. So as you started to identify more as a songwriter, what changed about how you saw the world or saw yourself? I think that I see the links between things and I think it's probably what unconsciously compelled me to pick up the pen to begin with was there's something in the way I think that finds, you know, these these link points between maybe incongruent um, ideas or concepts and that doesn't mean that they are great and profound. It just means that I'm always looking for links. I'm looking for, for, for things that tell the story of another thing. And I guess that's part of what you do when you're trying to find a metaphor or something that is a, or a simile, something that's going to, to find a meeting place between two separate concepts. And so in a way, songwriter encapsulates the whole part of being involved in that amazing and, and, and really strange and uh, illuminating experience of writing a song. A song is this thing that you have all the power in the world over and no control whatsoever. You think that you're able to continuously access and evolve your own craft. And every now and again, once you really are honest with yourself, you have to succumb to the idea that actually you're already, you can, it's quite difficult not to cage yourself within your idea of what's good and what's bad. And so just having that concept of what's good and what's bad inevitably closes you off from a whole realm of possibilities. So hence going back to like young artists who maybe don't have those, those clear concepts of good and bad and they haven't you know, defined their parameters of you know, how to avoid, you know, how to kind of build up their security. They, they, they're more exposed to a, a wider you know, realm of possibilities, which means that, yeah, that's where, that's where the exciting stuff happens. So as a songwriter, I think, oh, I'm involved in the science of trying to capture whatever it is that for whatever reason comes up with a good song and that good song, I, I, I still find, I'm still totally fascinated by that. You know, what, what is it that you do when you're sitting down and writing one day versus the next day and those two days produce very different outcomes. And I'm really, you know, I, I love the fact that, you know, all of the thinking and the experience and the knowledge in the world can't change that equation. Can't change the fact that sometimes it's going to work. Sometimes it's not going to work. And you just got to give yourself the time mm. and the availability for those ideas to come to you. And, and that's where the real craft side of that, uh, you know, that, that kind of polar uh, opposite of, well, not opposite, but that, that complementary side of artistry, which is craft. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about craft in a second, but just on the identity thing, there's a book called, I think it's called Falling Upward, written by a relatively well-known Franciscan monk. And it talks about how the first, or this gentleman talks about how the first half of life is about establishing our identities, usually based on what we're not. And then the second half of life, for some people, because not everyone even crosses into it. It's not even about age. It's in this kind of person's or this person's canon's mind. It's, uh, it's a state of mind. And that second half of life is about trying to work out how you're going to help people. Now, the, yeah. rap, the rap world that we grew up around was very quick. There were a lot of gatekeepers. Maybe some of us were those gatekeepers for people yeah. who would tell people what to think, usually by saying what was not cool. So like fake rap or... R&B was like one of the battlegrounds, for examples, or in Australia, in our, in, in our world, if you're up to an American accent, that was a battleground and, and that, was not, that was not keeping it real, quote unquote. And then, yeah. it, then it just takes some time. Like, did, did you subscribe to any of those ideas about what wasn't real when you were younger? Yeah, definitely. I think that just comes down to artistic insecurity and, and, and being anxious to to, to prove yourself and have, and have an identity that is going to make you accept, make you be accepted. I mean, that kind of gets to the heart of, you're talking about that book. It's, it's one of the most profound things about life is, at least for me, is coming to a sense of belonging, like wherever you are, just having that, that, that feeling like you belong. And, oh, geez, when, you, when you're navigating your own identity, it's very hard to, you know, 
skip a few steps to the fact that no, I belong here no matter what. I mean, anyone who's comfortable enough within their own skin to be able to belong no matter how they exist within the context of their peers is, you know, that that's the, uh, that's the master. That's the, that's the one who's, who's leveled up really early. And I think that just thinking about that idea of your peers kind of forming this current, you, you get swept along with it. And I always had this tension between the idea of being a yes man, which in the context that I felt it was the intuition or the instinct to say yes to things because saying yes to things would allow you yourself almost permission to just fail and and just to learn along the way. Whereas saying no to things quite often closed off a short term opportunity or exercise, whatever it may be, the thing that you're involved with that may not have been the right thing. And it may have appeared as a fairly amateur form of expression. You know, maybe I'm talking about a bad song or being unprepared for a gig or just not, not, not looking the part. But you never know where that decision to say yes is going to lead to. So you, you say yes to that thing and you're not ready. Um, but that forms a, a ritual, like it forms a habit and, and you, you're just not stopping yourself. And I guess that's some of the thing that comes with being an artist and for a lot of other people is the idea of perfectionism and, and seeking to be a perfectionist. And I always liked the idea of saying, yes, yeah. so that's my idea of being a yes man was that. But then at the same time, yeah, there were so many gatekeepers and I probably was not probably, I definitely was one because you, you feel like that is like a, you become involved with something and that gives you a license to then to start um, imposing that on other people around you because you think that that's part of paying your dues. Mm. And part of that is good, paying your dues. It's about respect and, and fundamentally like you can be a yes man and really respect what you're, you're engaging with and what you're interacting with because there's no way that you can become really good and, and really deeply understand what you're doing without, without developing a great level of respect for that thing. So, yeah, I definitely had a tension between that that saying yes to things, but also saying no to things. And, and I probably, you know, imposed similar limitations on, on other people around me. Mm. Well, it's interesting to hear you talk about belonging and, and belonging in the world and trying to work out how to establish an identity that other people will accept so that you feel that you do belong in the world. Whereas yep. whether it's maturity or not, most artists, to your point, they focus on how they belong in themselves and they use no to protect them so that other people don't disrupt that. And they can sometimes come across as very disagreeable because of that, because they don't want to, they often don't want to do the easy and obvious thing because it doesn't align with how they exist in themselves. Is that something that you have quite a strong grip on now that if you think back to when you were younger, it, it, that kind of grip is very different? Yeah, I mean, it would be. It's so good to be able to impart some of this wisdom. Um, but even having these conversations where I can mentor younger artists and you can say these things, it's it's almost pointless because the true way of coming to a point where you, you do accept that that feeling of belonging is is an internal journey rather than one that's that's validated by other people. Is it something you you eventually learn through some pretty difficult times and some good times as well? Like it's 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 the holistic sort of experience of what you're what you're living through. But you know, it's it's funny talking about what what might have been, but uh, belonging is something that I'm still learning and I'm still coming to terms with. I had this. I don't know if I'm going off the topic here, but I had a a session with some other managers a few months ago and. I heard one of them tell this story about how they had actually had to take a drastic step with some of the artists that with one of the artists they manage and they had to let go of a whole bunch of the crew and the staff that was working around this artist. And it was a decision that they took because they had to be a leader and they had to identify the fact that their priority was their artist and that there was some signs or some ongoing signs of toxicity within the team. And normally, you know, in that environment, I think 
most people are trying to be agreeable and trying to get along and, you know, touring is a high pressure environment. It's one where, you know, there's a whole lot of pressures that are put on people, sleep deprivation, um, a lot of access to alcohol, a really rigorous touring schedule, flights. It's um, generally accompanied by really insecure employment, contract-based, no superannuation, no holidays. So it can be a pretty tough environment. And, And you're always trying to be really mindful of those around you and be considerate. So it can also create a, a mentality of not confronting people with, with issues. Anyway, I was listening to this guy tell me this story and it really kind of um, brought home to me that there's a difference between um, accepting the role that you have been given or that you have and trying to be a, you know, a nice guy to everybody because quite often these things, you know, even if you try and avoid... Um, you know, directly confronting something like eventually you're going to have to resolve that matter. And usually if you don't, if you don't take actions early, it doesn't avoid the confrontation. The confrontation comes anyway. Anyway, it's, it's it really kind of left me thinking about the responsibility of being in the position that I'm in and, and just accepting the fact that you've got to be a leader and that other people around you are looking for that leadership because you are, you're, um, you're all there to perform different roles within your team. And uh, that's not so different from belonging and realizing that, you know, you have the right to take steps that you, that you, you feel are important, even if that means being, you know, confronting something. And I think that that's a, another form of just accepting that, that identity that comes with a job. And I know I digress there. I kind of mm. went way off, but that belonging is not just an artistic one and that, that comfort in that space. Mm. Um, it's really, it's, you know, it's been one of the, the, the biggest things I've learned this year because it's just, you just remember that you're constantly, you know, interacting in different environments. And I've always sort of had to straddle those two things, those two sides of the personality, which I'm, I'm one of those people that's half introverted and half extroverted. You know, when you're not extroverted enough, you can easily feel guilty for not living up to the that side of your personality, letting the introverted side of you mm-hmm. come over. And, and sometimes you just got to accept that that's that's who you are, and you, you can accept those uh, those things about yourself that don't always live up to the the optimum version of yourself. And but you still have a right to be in the space that you are. Like you're entitled to be in that space. You belong in that space. So get over the um, the self-doubt and the questions and the guilt and just get on with the, with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, re- I relate to that. I relate to that. And there are definitely different parts of the world that put even more pressure on extroversion, uh, in, in work, life, business, everything. Now over 20 years of essentially getting paid to do art, you must've faced many rough times, many situations when you could have given it up. Why have you persisted? probably a bunch of luck to be really completely honest with you. I think that we are ground down by art over time because after a while, you know, the, the time and the day is just not what it once was. And the ability to experiment and to be indulgent with your, 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 your purest version of your creative self is a real privilege. and as time goes by, that privilege feels more indulgent by the day. And I think when I talk about luck, I talk about the fact that for whatever minor version of the zeitgeist that I tapped into as an artist, it's been one that has repaid me over and over again. And it's allowed me to explore my own story and to be able to try and uh, widen the scope of that story over time. And that's just a privilege. That's just really fortunate that the songs that I write have connected in the way that they have. And I think that, sure, I'm not trying to be self-deprecating. I'm not trying to say, oh, it's, it's all luck because it goes without saying that there's a huge amount of hard work that comes along with that. But there's a whole you know, ocean of artists that work incredibly hard and have a whole lot more talent than I that for whatever the 
reason the timing wasn't quite right. Haven't tapped into that zeitgeist in the same way. So, you know, obviously I'm at a very low level of the, of of that zeitgeist, but it was enough to sustain me and to justify the time that I need to experiment. And so that time is like, you know, that means that sometimes I'm working all day and then I'm going to the studio at night, like I'm putting my daughter to bed and feeding her and I'm kissing my wife on the cheek and heading back out and going to the studio for hours. So it is, it's really hard work, but I would not do that extra work if I didn't feel like there was a justification for it, like there was a, there was a, a listenership out there that was waiting for the songs and even as small as it is, it feels like it justifies that effort that it takes to do it. And I've really come to understand that it doesn't matter if you are really commercially successful and that is the main incentive that you have to keep writing songs, to, to feed that source of income and maybe that ego. It doesn't have to be that. And it doesn't have to be that you're young and you have a whole lot of, a lot of time on your hands. You're an obsessive or you're a true artist. It doesn't have to be any of these different ways that we look at art. All that matters is that you are able to pick up the pen and start writing. And whatever way that it is that you come to that is all that matters. Not if it's financially viable, not if it's just an addiction, not if it's, um, you know, whatever is the path that kind of leads you to that point, all of them are as valid as the other because all that matters is that you keep coming back to the pen and paper Mm -hmm. or the guitar or the, the paintbrush or the computer, whatever it is, you just keep going back to it. It's interesting to hear you earlier mention that right and wrong can be distracting thoughts and then to hear you talk about the purest version of your creative self. <laughs> what is the purest version of you? I'm still trying to work that out. I feel that purest version is the ability to eliminate those, um, some of those things that are necessary to be an artist and that's your intuition. Your intuition, it, it guides you, it allows you to be able to make decisions where logic perhaps fails you and where perhaps the, the best and, and easiest solution is not clear. Um, you know, you can fall back on your instinct and that, that's an, an amazing thing. As I keep on working on music, I find that because I've done this and I keep coming back to the coalface, the danger of repetition is actually the biggest threat to my own ability to access the, the song that I haven't written yet. So the purest version of myself is actually counterintuitive these days in that I'm trying to balance all the things that I've learned with a way of unraveling all those things that I've learned. <laughs> And that is a weird meeting place. Like I, I don't think I can put a finger on exactly what that place is, but that's the place that I'm looking for. That sounds like the place we know is infinity. I'm going to give it a name. <laughs> I give it a fancy name. I totally made up the word because I'm really good at words, Tim. I'm going to call it infinity. Yeah. yeah and, that no, place, I feel and that place, you know, a lot of artists, philosophers think as they end up there and it can be beautiful and amazing. And it can also be really harrowing for some people because their heads get stuck in this loop that loops, that loops, that loops. And it can be, it can be, it's, it's powerful and it can be destructive and self-destructive. Is there a song that you can point to from your career that is like, yes, that is really me in as pure a sense as I know it right now? Well, I would point to the music that I haven't released yet because that to me, I, I suppose part of being grateful for having somewhat of an unexpected career is that I do have a little bit of luxury to be able to explore that kind of open creativity now. So, you know, this record is a record where I've, um, you know, been really seeking out that, that, that middle ground, that, that new space for myself creatively. And the inevitability of all this is that I'll probably release that music and it, won't sound like the polar opposite of what I've done previously. And that's just a natural outcome of, 
of making music where you hone it down and, until it is more familiar than I would really want. So I can't really tell you what, what that song is. You know, the, there were glimpses of it in the last record, but nothing that really got as close. And I think that you, you're totally right that that place can be destructive, but it goes back to that initial idea, which I think is still a big part of me, or at least I, I hope that it's still a big part of me. And that's not, and that's to be a yes man hmm. and to be able to sign off on things or, or move with it and allow like a, a, a certain kind of spontaneity to still exist within my creative process. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's always difficult to put your finger on exactly when to stop that, when to, when to keep going, when to keep on trying to improve it or when to let it go. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that I'm trapped by my own sort of, you know, search for perfectionism. So, yeah. It's, it's funny because for some people, you know, you hear these phrases, you are what you do, you are what you eat, you are the average of the five or three or whatever it is, people that you spend your, the most time with. But if you're kind of on the brink of infinity at all times, then it sounds like like that you are what you haven't done yet and you will always be what you haven't done yet because you're, you're trying to get there and, and that's infinite. So you're not going to get there. There's something powerful about that thought as well and liberating, but also if that frustrates someone, <laughs> it's going to hurt them because yeah. they're, they're, they're never going to be done. Never going to be done. Yeah. Well, that, that's it. And, um, you know, my great uncle, he passed away um, earlier this year and he died at 91 and he worked up until he was 89 and he was an electrician, but he was also this total eccentric, you know, artist. Like we're talking about an old, a, you know, much older generation. You know, he was born just after the First World War and he still had that really sort of chauvinist disposition. Like he was the head of the family and he worked his fingers to the bone, but he would also go into his garage and steadily like he was he did up cars and had all these different ways that he would express his creativity outside of being an electrician and all of them were were interesting and you know involved heaps of his brain power and um you know all that problem solving would be put to different applications but he started building props and and staging and then collected costumes and he would go to you know, the sales from previous theatre uh, runs, like musicals and whatnot that, that had like month-long runs and then they would sell off all the costumes and he would go and buy a whole bunch of them. And then he started putting on these New Year's Eve musicals, which were essentially just miming performances and, all, and he would get all of the family together and everyone would dress up in different costumes and do different numbers from musicals. And it got bigger and bigger until... You know, in the central coast, which is uh, an hour and a half north of Sydney, on this in this little coastal town, he would have staging. He would have like a, a tiny grandstand because it was in the backyard of their property, and they would have lighting. And then there'd be this huge back room with all of the the props and the costumes. And then they would do this New Year's Eve performance, and and everybody would would come along and sit, and all the local community would get involved, and people started taking on roles and he would send out cassette tapes to, to people to, to learn their parts in, a, in advance of the, the New Year's Eve event. And he kind of just had this, I guess, uh, passion for all these different things that wasn't just directed into one place. And he kept that up until, until he was like into his 80s. And I think... I share something similar to what he has. And, and if I could boil it down, it's curiosity. And so, yeah, maybe, you know, you'll never achieve, you'll never get to that destination. But the coolest thing and the thing that keeps me inspired is like a sense that there's something really great on the other end of the page. <laughs> and that keeps me really interested. Like I really don't feel like I've written the songs that I've been, um, that I'm supposed to write. I, I, I think, Oh wow. You know, like I don't, it's not just as simple as oh, the best is ahead of me. I don't know about that, but, um, I still feel like there's a number of different songs that I need to write. And even if they're not as successful as, as things I've done before, I still think that I, I, you know, I have not completed my tasks yet. And that that's curiosity. I just want to learn new things. And, um, and when I, when I've, you know, rinsed that dry 
then I want to go and be a painter or something. But I want to keep on learning and I want to keep on being involved in things that make me have like really exciting parts of my life outside of being a manager. I want, I want to kind of like, I want to have that feeling of going to the studio at 8 p.m. and waking up in the morning knowing that I've got a demo that is a little bit closer to my next record. That's actually, actually sometimes like going to the studio is the worst thing in the world and working is just, time, you know, it's laborious and it's unclear and it's frustrating and I don't like it. But I know if I wake up in the morning having another verse recorded and written, I know I wake up feeling pretty good. And so, you know, that's it's fuel. Yes. I, I relate to that as far as writing and then even some of the talky talks that I do. I got, I got two last questions because I, like I said, <laughs> I know we could do six hours easily. Yeah. All right. And this one is a little esoteric, but let me see how you handle it. What have you learned about being an artist that you could only learn from managing other artists? Yeah. Well, there are literal ways to answer this question. And that is sometimes found in just mere fascination with processes where people, you know, I'll give you an example. I work pretty closely. One of the artists that I manage um, is a really great songwriter and he writes his verses in, I guess, how can I describe this? You know, when you're playing Mario Kart and you have that mushroom, you pick up the mushroom and it's, it like speeds your head. You get that, that zoom thing and you just, you can zoom forward on the race course. Well, this guy writes his verses and leaves lines out like, or he'll leave half a line out and keep going. So he won't need the, the, the clarity of exactly what's in front of him in order to keep moving along with the um, project that he's doing with the, with the task that's at hand. So that's a really different way of working than I have. I can't skip bits. I can't just sort of like skip and then move forward. I've got to keep on writing and then I'll go and edit backwards. You know, I'll go and rewrite parts, but I can't do that. That's a thing to me that is just like, I do not understand this. And I worked with, um, I suppose I'm talking about the creative side of things, but, you know, part of working closely with people is that you get to really have a, a better understanding of how they tick. And also the depth of complexities that people put in front of themselves or not put in front of themselves, but are faced with, you know, whether that be mental illness or whether that be, you know, just, personal circumstances and then they have to work their way around those things in order to to skip forward and complete the task that they're doing those things continually amaze me and also give me time to reflect both on what I do and how I do it but also that actually we tend to have our winning formulas for making things a success or completing tasks, doing what we need to do. And so they, that becomes truth to, to us. And then, you, then I try and impart that on people that I work with. And when I see the different ways that different people operate, it forces me to continuously remind myself that my truth is only my truth. It's not the right thing for other people necessarily. And that's a... That, that reassessing, uh, it keeps, I think it keep, gives me a bit more of an even perspective because there's never, well, I, I have to resist the feeling that I'm right and being right is, it can be a really limiting um, way of being a leader and being, being someone who can, can kind of like shine the light. You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes actually you have to be part of the pack in order to, to be to best shine that light. Mm. Interesting, interesting. Okay, last last question. So, before we started to record, you'd, you'd mentioned that you'd seen some of the, the little strategy drawings and things that I've put on the internet, which must be quite strange if you're not in the strategy world. They're very strange things. I don't know exactly what's going on. Some of these things just come out, and 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 then you 
mentioned that you've used a couple of them. I'm just kind of curious, like what has been useful out of all that mind vomit? Well, I think it's probably just because firstly, I like the way you think. So, you know, um, those I'm, I'm listening and I think listening is actually, you know, when, you know, when you follow someone on social media and you you follow them for quite, for, for so long that you stop listening to them, you know, that their personality and their style is so familiar that you no longer take in what they're saying or you, you no longer engage with them because if you engage with them too much, you're just constantly creating this two-way conversation, which is not always the best way to exist on social media, especially on something like Twitter where you have a zillion people on there. Mm. So sometimes it comes back to being able to listen and sometimes it's just availability of, of your, you know, I don't know, mental oxygen to be able to, you know, take it on. But I think it comes back to the, f- the fact that I just, I just, I'm always looking for links. So that when you're talking about strategy, most of the time you're talking about people, you know, you, you do talk specifically in, um, in, in issues that affect the industry that you're in and that is relevant to the audience that you're talking to. But what I hear is just, um, people trying to communicate with each other and people trying to understand and it applies just as uh, relevantly to what I'm trying to do. So there's so much crossover there. Um, I'm not picking a, an example because um, I don't have one at the, at the top of my head, but the, so much of what you, you talk about removes the jargon and it just becomes about the way that we understand each other. And that's, that's, that's so much of what we're trying to do, even musically, like even as, as deep as you go as to being, you know, completely consumed by your art to the point where, you know, that, that becomes the primary concern of your whole life. Like you're still trying to communicate. I'm still trying to be able to connect with people and, and understand what makes people tick and what, what resonates and, you know, that you're in the business of communication and so am I. Mm. Yeah. And I, I wasn't fishing for anything. I'm just, I'm just curious to see what had stuck. I mean, but, but, but if your next album's called the way we understand each other and, and each, each song <laughs> is about like something to do with strategy, I'm going to be a bit suspicious, Tim. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> hey, you know, like I was reading this, uh, you know, I'm constantly looking at, I like one of the most beautiful things about songwriting is just the, the turn of phrase. And, and sometimes I'll write down things that just hit me and I think, Oh wow, that is an amazing lyric. I'm going to put that down there. And then you, you come back to it and there's nothing about it that makes any sense. Yeah. You, you don't know where to put it. You don't know where to paste it. But at some points in, in your, when you, when you're engaging with something, it just like speaks to you so loudly. And the key thing for me at that point is to be able to write them down. And if I'm lucky, probably half of those things end up being, you know, um, parachuting their way into a song. <laughs> they just find their way and they get plumped, plumped in there. Mm-hmm. And I sat, I've sat there with a song that I've written for something very important to me and I've spent a year not knowing how to write the chorus. The other week I was reading this article on a West Indian cricketer and there was a few turns of phrases there and one just stuck with me and now that's, one of the lines in the chorus of the, the, you know, the song that took me a year to find what, what those words were. And it came out of a cricket article. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like they, they come from all different places. It just depends on whether you're listening for them. Yes. I hear you. Uh, Tim, a awesome chatting with you 20 years later. I know we didn't drop too many names, not of, of the names that you're involved with for people to Google, but if people are curious about like, about you, the stuff that you've done, the music that you've made, where's the best place to find out about it? The label and the management company that I work with is Elephant Tracks and that is Elephant with an F. And we're based in Sydney and some of the acts that we've got are Hermitude and Horror Show. And uh, yeah, you can just Google us there and find out a little bit more about the music that we're doing and love to uh, hear from you. Mm. I'm sure when I get around people's I've often heard of Hermitude. They seem to have really done well. They've, they've been around for ages as well. They're, I think they're a little bit younger than us, aren't they? They are, yeah. I mean, you know, when you come back to things that make you excited about what you do and make you feel like, you know, there's, there's, there's always new things to be able to appreciate. You know, they're one of those classic stories. They, 
they, they plied their trade for 10 years before their audience really opened up. In the last seven or eight years, they've spent touring the world and getting all kinds of opportunities that would never have seemed realistic. And most of us do not do something for 10 years with no payoff. <laughs> Usually we give it a month, a few months or, or a year or two or three maybe. And, you know, if you can't, I get so inspired by people who are so committed to what they, what they do that they can look past some of the kind of like parameters that we put on for like, okay, this is a reasonable time to actually have a go at this. If it, ha- if it doesn't work, it's only a smart thing to do to walk away. Actually, sometimes don't walk away. <laughs> stick to it. I love it. Oh, it's hard to make those decisions when you're in it, but uh, yeah, (laughs) if you want to do music, if you want to do stand-up comedy, if you want to do strategy work, you probably need to commit in some form to something of 10 years of hard work, at least. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. That's the thing is like, you never know. I, I think one of the, one of the best things is, is for me is just that saying yes and, and just following those doors, you know, so much in a song, like, come and I, I know that we've, we've kind of finished this conversation, but my, my favorite um, way of describing writing songs is, is you never know at what point in the decision-making of a song you've ruined it or you've lost it, mm. but you never know what decision is the key one to make it great. And sure, sometimes songs just come to you and they're just easy or whatever, but usually a song comes about from like, you know, 50 different decisions or more. And each of those decisions kind of like, is, it's, a, it's a chain of events that you can, you can either never come back from or it takes you to the promised land. And yeah, I think it's a reminder that you never want to overly put too many unnecessary red lights in the way because that decision is, is sort of a little bit hard to put your finger on exactly where, where that right one is or where that wrong one is. But I'm repeating myself now and it was very great to chat to you. Uh, I like it. And like most people who listen to this, we'll do some form of writing today or tomorrow. And so I think that that song challenge of which, you know, not knowing which decision makes something good or not good, I think they can take that with them. That's, yeah. it's, pra- it's practical in a frustrating way. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, no. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Really appreciate you joining me on Sweathead today. Let's speak again soon. Thank, yeah. Thanks heaps for the chat, Mark. It was uh, really enjoyable and it's uh, been far too long. Um, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, chatting again. You bet. Peace.